Spencer Balpin, Zero to Brass, and Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio is a contributor to Fangraphs.com and also the sort of person making his debut appearance on Fangraphs Audio was Owen Watson. Owen Watson. Owen. Dr. Owen Watson. I will not say for sure. I do not know for sure because I failed to locate the relevant information before I began talking <laughs> talking right now. But I will say, I will bet that Owen Watson has not been writing at Fangraphs for more than a year. And I will not only bet, but I know that he is also a graduate of Hampshire College. Hampshire College, Hampshire College, Hampshire College is a school, the college in Massachusetts, part of the five colleges in Massachusetts. It's unique, it's unique for its pedagogical approach insofar as there are no grades offered. There are no grades offered at that school, and also students students complete a final project of some considerable substance. It's possible that I don't know much more than that about Hampshire College, but what Owen Watson reveals to us is more information about Hampshire College. <laughs> um, he also, do we discuss baseball? We do. We do, actually. We do. If you're here for baseball, do we do. We look at, I ask uh, Owen Watson about his the, the trajectory of his fandom, not only the trajectory of his fandom, but also his trajectory as a, as a baseball analyst. We discussed that as well. Finally, are you interested in contemplating the difference between a short novel and a novella? Then you have stumbled on the exact right podcast because that sort of thing is the, the thing that follows. It's a fun, what it is, is it's just a fun conversation with a colleague. Also, what one finds here, what one finds right now is an advertisement. An advertisement from a real sponsor. This sponsor is Draft. Draft is an app. Draft is a real app available for iOS and also available for uh, the Android operating system. It is a daily fantasy game, and I hear what I already hear what you're saying. You're saying daily fantasy game. Can I not play FanDuel? Can I not play DraftKings? These are daily fantasy games. Yeah, but what you don't know about those, what you should know about those, is that they are not the first daily fantasy games designed uh, specifically for your mobile device. Draft, Draft is the is one of those. Are you? Uh, what you do is all you do is against either an internet stranger or. Uh, some other sort of friend who is also part of the draft app. You um, conduct a, a snake draft. You each select five players uh, for baseball or alternatively for NFL football, for NFL football or for college football, and uh, also for NBA basketball. I'm pretty sure when that begins. And then you see who wins. You find out. You wait for the results. The points are applied to various events that occur within those sports, and then you find out who wins. Are you very confident? Well, then you can wager American dollars on it. That's the sort of thing that is available. That's another option that's available to you. And allow me to reveal, I you can also challenge Carson Stool if you go to the link that appears uh, within the post, the post that is this for this edition of the podcast, edition of the program. You can find a link. You can compete against Carson Sestouli. Direct me. I'm Carson Sestouli, in case you didn't know. Uh, I, I can tell you all the people to whom I've lost. I lost to Darth Nader. <laughs> it's not Darth Vader. Darth Nader. I lost to Ozzy Brooks. I lost to... No, I beat Player TBNL. Player to be named later. I beat him. And I also beat Hail Satan. Which like uh, looks like it might be Hail Satan, actually. So that is just a brief recap of the people I've uh, to whom I've lost. And also a couple whom I've beaten. Um, it is the draft app. It's available, as I say, at the App Store, 
or alternatively Google Play or anywhere else you get the uh, Android apps. Okay, that is the end of the sponsor part. I have already introduced Owen Watson, and what we are getting to now is 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 my conversation with Owen Watson. Where Fangraphs Audio, and at, at what point does it begin? It appears to begin right now. just to make sure okay yeah oh did you do a, did you do a, a skype test call yes i uh i called the lovely uh british lady who, yeah you know <laughs> it's the only Brit- it's the only british woman that'll talk to me oh <laughs> <laughs> um i started recording just so you know okay sounds right. good um wait uh how are you oh i'm pretty good I'm, uh, I was in the process of watching Arsenal lose to, uh, Dynamo Zagreb in the Champions League because I'm a soccer fan, a woeful Arsenal soccer fan, if, if it is to be admitted. How did that, uh, how did that happen? Um, so probably about, I've, I've played soccer my entire life and I lived in Barcelona when I was actually 10 years old for, uh, about half a year and, uh, just ended up getting really into, into soccer and then moved back here and it never really went away. So probably about 11 or 12 years ago, they started showing soccer on TV kind of seriously, yeah. you know, um, and especially the EPL. So that was when Arsenal was really good and Thierry Henry was, you know, having a field day. So that was, was actually that, uh, the last time they won was, was about 11 or 12 years ago. So that's some sort of unbeaten season at one point. Yes, they did. That was the, uh, the Invincibles when they didn't, didn't lose a game for the entire season. So, that so yeah, team, that kind of, that, it was easy to root for them back then. That team have Dennis Bergkamp on it? Yeah, Bergkamp and, uh, Robert Perez and Youngberg and Vieira. Uh, yeah, and, and Bergkamp and Thierry Henry. It was, it was pretty stacked. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but of course now they're a shell of their former selves and, you know, are, are very hard to root for. So it's, it's become difficult recently. What, um, uh, so here, here's a question, and so maybe you do have a different approach to it because you you actually lived in Barcelona. I'll ask you about why that why that's the case uh, momentarily. But um, so my impression is, uh, well, like a certain class of person, I'm sure, a sort of a type of person that exists. Um, I naturally assume that Europe is better in all ways than the United States. Um, Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm and I listen. I'm I'm very clear on the fact that this is an illusion. Uh, and yet I still continue to believe it, although probably not as uh, virulently as I once did, having actually lived in that continent and recognizing that it has a number of flaws. However, uh, soccer for me was as much like, um, I mean, I like sport, obviously, but it also had, it was like a, it was a means, it was a means to participate. It, it created sort of a, like, a, it was like tourism at the same time, right? Because okay. I yep. because mm-hmm. I could say because I could be whisked away, could be whisked away to whatever place I was. You know, I I, I know that um, I don't know if it's still the case now, but certain stadiums, uh, especially in maybe maybe not the English Premier League, but certain other stadiums, you could actually see out beyond the stadium from certain camera angles. So I remember like Catania, Catania is an Italian team. You mm-hmm. could like see Vesuvius in the background. That's a lie. Cool. I think that's a lie what I'm saying now. But one <laughs> of them, there's a giant mountain. There's a giant mountain in the background. Um, so I could participate in Italian life while sitting in my uh, sitting in my house. 
Right. That's yeah. That's that's a uh, that's a cool way of looking at it. Yeah, I went to a game in 2009 when I was back in Barcelona, and that was really cool. Um, but yeah, it's kind of like a. Uh, an anti-baseball to me. I don't know. I, I love baseball so much, but soccer kind of represents in many ways the antithesis of it, where it's kind of hard to measure and it's this free-flowing, um, you know, game where one event kind of runs into the next and there aren't these sort of delineations like there are in baseball. So I feel like it captures um, this something that that is completely opposite from baseball in a way. For me. I, will, I will also say that uh, perhaps because it has like a really... I'm going to employ a phrase that I, I like, seductive geometry. Uh, it okay. has a seductive uh-huh. geometry. Exactly. Like, uh-huh. And um, I, think, I think it's aesthetically more pleasing than baseball. Uh, there are certainly aspects of baseball that are aesthetically pleasing. For example, a nice pitch. I like mm-hmm. nice pitches. A, a, defensive, a defensive, a web gem. <laughs> a web gem as long as it has not been uh, excavated by a, by a small... Sri Lankan boy or girl, because <laughs> uh, that, that's a blood web. That's a blood web gem. Uh, uh, yeah, but, I like the. You know, I like the uh, the contrast in baseball, like the you know the color of, especially when the game begins, when everything is perfectly groomed and you know the bases are white and the grass is green and the dirt is pristine. You know, I, I like that. But but you're right in terms of the actual game. I, I think the aesthetics of soccer is you know that the. the the triangular sort of uh, geometry to it is. Have you? Is awesome. I, I haven't heard you employ the phrase seductive geometry yet. No, but uh, I'm going to put that in my back pocket. I like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're allowed <laughs> if you if you find yourself writing about the game for the New Yorker, you're allowed to use that phrase. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, I'll credit you. Don't worry. I appreciate it. Uh, why did you live in? First of all, it should be said you are Owen Watson, your contributor to Fangraphs.com. These are the things I definitely know about you. Mm-hmm. Um, I also know, and it is, this is a not small reason why I'm, why I'm interested in talking to you, is that you are a graduate, uh, you're an alumnus, yeah, of uh, Hampshire College? I am indeed, yes. The, uh, you know, the, the famous or infamous, I should say, Hampshire College. I'd say it's one of, I'd say it's one of the country's, um, silliest and most beautiful universities. I would completely agree with okay, that. Good. On a lot of levels, yeah. yeah. Useless, useless and fantastic. Exactly. Okay, good. Yep. I'm glad we're on the same page because, and I like things that are simultaneously useless and beautiful. I, those, those are my favorite things. I think that school does a good job at that. Um, uh, but uh, so, let, tell me. Let's first of all, let's talk about Barcelona. What, where were you living besides Barcelona, like before and after Barcelona? So I'm from Virginia. I'm from uh, Central Virginia uh, in this town called Charlottesville, which is where the University of Virginia is. Uh-huh. And- yes, it is. Yes, and I am from there because my mother actually teaches at the graduate business school at UVA. Okay. Um, so I've pretty I've lived there since I was in, oh well, probably since I was six actually. So I basically lived there for my entire life. But my my mother has gotten these kind of semester long teaching gigs in various European cities that I've gotten to kind of tag along with her um, on, especially in Barcelona. So when uh, I was about ten. My mother got this gig in Barcelona, and I basically, uh, the entire family, so my sister and my father and my mother, we all moved to Barcelona for about six months. Did you go to, what did you, you do? You go to an American school? Yeah, I went to an international school, actually, um, which was called Benjamin Franklin International School. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I don't remember a whole lot other than... Because you, um, you were so drunk. 
Yeah, the whole exactly. Time. Well, yeah, I'm, as as my dad tells it, you know, my dad at that time was a landscape architect, so he kind of had to, you know, he owned his own business and stuff. So he kind of basically took six months off, and from his account, he basically just went to cafes and drank bottles of wine. So, uh, you know, it's it sounded like a good life for him, but uh, I just played soccer pretty much as as far as I remember, and and hung out with a lot of international students. So. Um, it was a really great time for me. That's that's for sure. So um, I still go back, you know, probably every five years or so. So um, you, you know, what you did recently? Things. Did you recently? Yeah. So I think 2009 was the last time I went back. So um, and I might go back next year, but um, you know, when we go back, we we do the architecture thing, of course, because there's amazing architecture in Barcelona. There's Gaudí is the main architect there. So uh, and I try to fit some soccer in and stuff like that. So if you were to if you were to summarize briefly. Uh, what Gaudi's works, uh, what they resemble, how would you do it? Oh, um, so he is very into kind of organic um, architecture, so it almost looks like trees growing out of the ground or moss draped on structures. Um, famously, one of the ways he used to design buildings is he used to basically design them um, with kind of anti-gravity, if that makes sense. He would almost hang, he would basically hang weights from chains and link the chains together and then he would um, put a mirror below it and it would basically show what the building would look like if it was actually flipped um, right side up. So he had this kind of, um, I don't want to say, you know, a kind of organic Art Deco style, almost like... Well, don't say it then. Yeah. <laughs> um, but a, a less linear sort of, of, of Deco style, I want to say, if, if I'm... If I'm Completely off base there, then please correct me. But um, well, if someone might correct you. Yeah, if someone if someone feels um, this is, I would say this is not an attempt to acquire more comments on the, the right. <laughs> but if you are someone who has some sort of expertise in design, ar- architecture and design, and you would care to summarize in I don't know what fifty words or less uh, the works of Gaudi, then that would be much appreciated. And in a in a respectful as possible manner, please. Yeah, why not? Yeah, let's keep the level of discourse high. Let's work. Uh-huh. I'd say let's work at the top of our intelligence. Someone wants exactly. Uh, but yeah, but you know, he he sought to bring the natural world into his architecture as much as possible. If okay. that is any good encapsulation. Yeah, that's good. That's fine. Do, uh, I I my sense is that. But well, how old how old of a person are you? Uh, I'm 28. Oh, you're 28. So when you went back to Barcelona, you've been like 22, something like that. Mm-hmm. So you could enjoy it mostly as an adult. I mean, it seems like it, I've never been. It seems like a fantastic place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, true or false? Very true. And Vero or falso? And, uh, very true. Es verdad, see. But, uh, yeah, I mean, last time I went back, I did the whole, you know, go out to, to clubs until 7 a.m. thing. So I, I feel like I've experienced the city on a number of different levels, and, and it is wonderful in all of those levels. Oh, and all the levels are sexy, isn't that right? Yes. Yes, indeed. Uh-huh. <laughs> are there are there nerds in Barcelona, or are they are they sort of weeded out by uh, for, by various means? Uh, I'm 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 sure there are. Uh, I really didn't come into contact with many of them. As you know, I, I was hanging out with my mom's graduate students the last time I went. So so they're nerdy. Um, yeah, I guess. But, so, yeah. Yeah, but you know, in terms of you know soccer nerds or baseball nerds, I'm sure they're lurking somewhere. So your mom your mom teaches. Um, your mom teaches business. She's a business professor. She's a mm-hmm. professor, professor de business. <laughs> Is that right? Yes. Um, which 
makes it kind of funny that I would attend a, that, yes. a liberal arts institution where no, the you most design liberal, your own major. Yes. The most liberal arts institution. Yeah, I right. was thinking because because a business school – so a business school, at the undergraduate or graduate level, is frequently – that's a money-making venture for, for the institution. Right. Typically, right? Because it's like an investment. The students are like, yeah, I'll pay for it, but the idea is I'm going into business – which is business really is just I'm going to make money. That's what business is. Right. I'm going to work for some Fortune 500 company. Yeah, I'm going to make. I'm going to. Be, I'm going to go where the money is. Right. Mm-hmm. And um, so that's usually. I, I would have to say I don't know exactly, but I know that that is typically a thing. Business school, whether again at the undergraduate or graduate level, um, it's typically for me. It it's a it's a discipline that sort of rides that line between professionalism or, or professionalism in academia, right? Mm-hmm. It's not a strictly academic pursuit. That's anthropology, right? Right. You mm-hmm. go in what I guess it's a soft science. What, what, I don't know. What would be, what do you think is the most liberal art pursuit? Is it? Uh, oh man. Um, you know, a, a design your own major sort of place, I guess you know, was, where yeah. you, where you blend yeah. anthropology with some sort of, you know, like, uh, Chilean creative writing literature major or something like that. <laughs> yeah, right. Know? Yeah. Which is, which happens at Hampshire, so. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Yes. Um, um, but of course, right. So as you note, though, Hampshire tends to occupy the other end of the spectrum. Um, and we discussed uh, by way of email earlier today or last night, I sent you – I recently watched uh, Eugene Merman's commencement address to I think the class of 2012. Mm-hmm. Uh, Eugene Merman, noted comic, probably most famous for uh, voicing one of the characters on Bob's Burgers. Yeah, that's what I immediately knew him from. But yeah, but he uh, he's he's released a number of uh, excellent comedy albums, com- uh, comedy specials, and he actually has released, I think, just this week, a seven volume a seven volume LP, um, including a live stand-up show in Seattle, but also uh, quite a lot else, including uh, something like um, erotic noises. <laughs> Uh, Russian, because he, he was born in the USSR, uh, so it's lesson, lessons in Russian, except for, uh, from someone who left Russia <laughs> at, at age four. So they just sound like erotic noises, is that, is that Maybe what that is, yeah, is. maybe uh-huh. that is it. Yeah. I, Russian reduced to, to four year olds, to four, an adult speaking Russian as a four year old. <laughs> yeah, maybe that is just a series of erotic noises. Uh-huh. Um, so yeah, he he delivered that address. And what's great about that, of course, is he's an alumnus himself, so he knows how useless and fantastic the school is. No, exactly. And and I think you're right. Is that um, my mother being a, a business professor? It, it kind of is interesting she, because she is my my sister is uh, you know like a filmmaker and is a, a sort of mixed media person. And she went to Pitzer, which is kind of the Hampshire of the West Coast. So, okay, yeah. right. That's part. Of, isn't that part of Claremont McKenna? Right. Exactly. Yeah, okay, yeah. yeah. So it's the 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 kind of consortium of colleges out on the West Coast, and I went to the consortium colleges on the East Coast. Um, so yeah, she kind of produced these two children who, you know, don't really have steady jobs and uh, and design their own major. So um, yeah, I wrote a short novel for my final project about um, you know the intersection of American identity <laughs> and, and uh, collective memory. So. Uh, to give you an idea of what Hampshire is like. Yeah. So you said short novel, did, but you did not say novella. No, I didn't. Um, 
you know, I probably should have said that. I don't like that word for some reason, but I, I think okay. it, it, you know, it's Less probably marketable. because it, it, it sounds, exactly, it sounds, <laughs> yeah. uh, sounds way better to say that you wrote a short novel instead of a novella. Yeah, people uh, are like, oh, he just, he wrote a novel. Yeah, it's a little bit short. Yeah, a little, a little bit, bit short, short, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah so's no Cannery Row. So's Cannery it, it, Row, but that's, that did well. <laughs> <laughs> Make no mistake, it was a novella, not a short novel. Uh, <laughs> I wonder what the best-selling novella ever is. Oh, I don't. I have no clue. You know, because no one reads novellas. You know, they're like, oh, that's you know, that's half a novel. Why do would think, I read? Do you think that? novella is a little bit like, like, like the viola of literature? Right, exactly. The yeah, the the bastard child of the violin, you know, or the cello, as yeah. it were. Um, I was talking with someone recently who teaches music. Well, it teaches music somewhere. Maybe at Interlock and Arts Academy. Okay, perfect. Is you that familiar in, with Interlock and Arts Academy? Michigan? Yeah, or, it is. Yeah, my okay. my wife is an alumna. She's an alumna. She's she's a disappointing alumna though because she didn't have an arts major. She did like the, the <laughs> you know just like school. She just right. went to school there. She wasn't involved in any of the creative majors. Um, but uh of course a number of people are and they they do fantastic stuff there. They also have a really strong summer summer arts program. That's what and, I know from. Yeah, I had a high school friend who went to Interlochen in the summer. Right. And I think that I think that is what it's most of but they they have mm-hmm. a, a sort of a boarding situation otherwise. And uh she um oh yeah, so she had, there's a teacher there now who teaches music. Maybe teaches violin or something. But I asked about the viola. I said does anyone does anyone ever does anyone ever state as a as a young person I'm going to be a I'm going to be a great violist <laughs> violist bro yeah and, and uh-huh. the answer is no I, and I think I think that again I would love to be contradicted or I wouldn't mind I should say I wouldn't love to I would would not mind being contradicted but I think that um it might be the sort of thing where a person said well you know uh I'm not going to be a great violinist uh, perhaps I should adopt perhaps I should I should be the best viola player in you know whatever orchestra I join, as opposed to like you know the tenth best violinist. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I think which, which competitive fine. advantage. You know, yeah. I think uh, coming to terms with your lowered expectations, or coming to terms with your flaws, and then <laughs> and then producing lower expectations based on that. That to me, that's my that's my favorite sort of trajectory in anybody. Right. So I I should say that I have almost come to terms with the fact that I wrote a novella. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're still. What well, you say? You're twenty twenty six. Twenty eight. Twenty eight. Right. Yeah. I think I think uh, I think thirty. I don't think necessarily. I don't. <laughs> the think, reckoning comes at thirty. Yeah, <laughs> and I don't necessarily think it's because you're like the human body is programmed to have it, but I also do think that human the the mind the brain does respond to whole numbers. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And you know, it's impossible. You know, the difference between twenty eight and twenty nine is probably very similar to the difference between twenty nine and thirty, and the difference between thirty and thirty one, and the day before you turn thirty and the day after you turn thirty <laughs> are very similar days. But you, yes, your head is programmed, you know, to respond to those whole numbers. And yeah, I think that, and that is, I think, the fantastic thing about turning thirty is you say, ah, man, I'm just, if I were going to be great. If I were going to be great, <laughs> there would likely be at least some indication at this point. It already would have happened. Yeah, you know? right. Yeah. It already would have. I mean, how old was Keats when he died? Oh, like, see, I, I, I can't even think about that stuff, you know. It's like the yardstick against, you know, all these incredibly famous artists, you yeah. know, who are, 
you know, brilliant by by age twenty or something like that. Yeah, yeah. right. It's not. It's not. Uh, it's not good. It's not good. It's not good. It's not good. He was twenty five. Twenty five. Love it. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. Recognized as one of the great poets. By twenty five. Yeah. By didn't 25. he die like extremely young? He died at 25. That's what I'm telling you. There you go. There you go. That's, that's what I'm saying to you. He died at 25. <laughs> what did you think I was saying? He made was an entire once? lifetime of, of poetry before he was 25. Yeah. <clears throat> he did it. I think uh, in what, in, of course, Rambeau, uh, I think he stopped writing at 19, right? <sighs> yeah. Just, okay. And then he just spent the rest <laughs> of his life uh, trading, dealing arms poorly, and then. Um, Suffering the effects of syphilis. I think that's oh, how fantastic! As as many people did. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, on the bright side, you have it. I don't think you have any syphilis. Is that? Have you guys? Uh, no, recently? not you know. I I don't actually. It's it's you know. That's I have a leg up over them at least. So at least you're not symptomatic if you do have it. Exactly, asymptomatic and a novella under my belt. That's you <laughs> yeah. Know, there you go. Fantastic. Suck it, Keats. <laughs> uh huh. That's how it goes. So oh, what did man. you? Uh, all right. So what was your? What was your uh, what do they call it? So Div three is a Div three a thing? Uh huh. That's yes. your, what, so, your final project. Right, Div three is uh, your final year at Hampshire, and it basically uh, constitutes a self designed and um, executed year long project. So mine was basically um, I tried to write a novel based or a, a novella, I should say. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's gonna trip me up. Um, uh, based upon fictionalized um, actual stories, both from my family's past and from a smattering of other people's pasts that I basically wove into this kind of dueling narrative. Oh, it was very lofty, as you might expect. Yeah, this sounds ambitious. As it's so ambitious. Um, and I don't think I realized until, you know, uh, March, you know, two months before I had to graduate that I was like, oh, man, I need to wrap this up, you know? Uh, <laughs> so it ended up just being this sort of rushed, dual narrative, very lofty and ambitious project that was distilled into about, you know, a 100 pages, I'd say. Yeah. No, wait, all right, so you say dual narrative. That I, I'm familiar with, for example, uh, Murakami's novel, Hard Boiled Wonderland and the End of the World. Love that, yep. In, mm-hmm. Yeah, okay, in which they're essentially... It's alternating chapters of different stories being told. Right, and that's almost exactly what it was. Okay. Yeah. So mm-hmm. what you were going to do is you were going to you were going to write a novel like Murakami's, except <laughs> except shorter, and also you had never written a novel before. Right, and not nearly as good. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, it was actually yeah. So it had all of the looking back on it, like a lot of the very trite kind of tropes that. Um, you know, are in a lot of really bad novels. So you had in the main narrative the character going through this arc, and then at the end of the story he is in like a coma for a week, of course. Mm-hmm. And then you find out that the other narrative that you've been kind of experiencing every other chapter has been like his experience in, in the, the coma. coma, in the coma, dealing with a lot of the issues that he has. Well, been that, well actually, I'm going to t- tell you what. Let me. Can I give you some credit? That's, sure. that's fairly elegant. Oh, I thanks. think that's fairly elegant. Yeah, <laughs> especially for a first attempt. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, in in truth, I haven't really read it since I, I did wouldn't. it. I wouldn't. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, but, you can you have know, good idea that comes off. The execution is kind of part of it, isn't it? Right. Yes. Um, but you know, my lovely girlfriend read it uh, a couple years ago, and. Whether she's just saying this to appease me or not, she actually liked it. So, you okay. know, I'm just going to take that and I'm going to run with it. Okay. You know. 
<laughs> <I've>... <laughs> That's great. Uh, okay, yeah. well, let's talk. Um, we're going to put Hampshire off to the side for one moment. Um, but we're going we'll come to. Back to it. Well, no, it's going to be there. It's there. <laughs> to, we have established some context with that. Uh, but one thing, typically, especially when I am uh, talking to a Fangraphs author, to whom I've you know never or rarely spoken before, I'm interested in the sort of the trajectory of baseball fandom and also n- the sort of baseball nerdery aspect of it. Uh, so I guess I'm curious as to like what were your first rooting interests and then your first you know, your first sort of sabermetric interests? You know, I think I've had like an interesting baseball fandom experience um, in that I am a former lifelong Red Sox fan. Um, So... Okay. (laughs) Already... (laughs) I know, I know. Very strange. Uh, You know, know, this is a typical Hampshire bullshit. (laughs) You're problematizing the idea of lifelong. That's what right, you're doing. Exactly. No, I'm a, life, no, I'm a former I'm, lifelong. I'm a former lifelong Red Sox fan. So uh, I've spent a tremendous amount of time in the Northeast because my family is from there. So I spent a lot of time in the Boston area, um, including you know time every summer of my life, basically. So starting what when I was about five, I'd say I started going to Fenway, and I went to Fenway probably every summer. A few times a summer until I was in my early twenties or something like that. Was this so, uh, what, what side of your family is this? Um, so both actually. So my father is from Philadelphia and my mother is from New Jersey. Um, but I just like to call to your attention: neither of those places are in are Michigan. from Boston. Yeah, are outside yeah. Boston. So. Yeah. Okay. Um, but a lot of my a lot of my mom's family lives up in Massachusetts, so okay. I would we would go visit them. Um, but. As a result, I was a Red Sox fan and have, you know, been a diehard Red Sox fan up until I moved to Oakland. That was about four years ago. Um, and, you know, the, the championships were great in 04 and 07, but then when I moved to Oakland, it was in the Bobby Valentine sort of, you know, year and, there just wasn't much to like about the Red Sox. And I know that, and I've, and I've thought about writing about this because, no doubt Red Sox fans will hear this and think that I'm a traitor and mm-hmm. that, and you know, I, I'm totally comfortable with that. Maybe you could uh, write it in the form of a dual narrative. Ex- <laughs> <laughs> well done, sir. Well done. Uh, <laughs> um, but you know, I've realized that, that baseball fandom for me and sports fandom in general is this masochistic pursuit for me in that I am constantly looking for, um, how should I put it? This, this catharsis um, that results from being just beaten down for years and years and finally winning and knowing what that winning feels like. And that winning, you know, sensation doesn't really come about unless you've been beaten down for years. Like, I don't know what Cardinals fans feel like. I, I can't even imagine it. Um, it sounds you know, like you don't, you, you don't, you mean because they've won a lot. Well, right, yeah, they win all the time. Right. I mean, and that's that's no fun to me. You or know? Giants fans, you, you or, or Giants, Giants fans, fans, or yeah. you know, even Yankees fans for a long time there. And I just, I, it just must be a different breed of person because I can't really understand what goes into that mindset because I'm always searching for the pain because the pain is what makes the winning better. And I think that when the Red Sox were at their lowest point, um, but they were still, you know, this kind of bloated, you know over-contracted team that was just very unlikable at the time. So when I moved to Oakland and 
you know, season tickets to the Oakland A's were $300. Um, it was just a natural kind of jump. So, you know, um, that's how I became an Oakland fan. I was searching for more pain than the Red Sox could give me. Right. So you, well, you're also looking to, it's, it's like a situation where you're essentially looking to buy, you're, you're looking to buy low. Right. Right. And you're looking to sort of maximize the returns on your emotional investment. Right. Exactly. So, and that's, and that's, and that's something that became, it became pretty difficult to do with the Red Sox after they, I mean, after they won 2004, I mean, that was, you know, that was probably the, that was like the highest return on investment possible. Exactly. Uh, I guess with the exception of, I mean, the Cubs. That's that's sort mm-hmm. of the exactly. Um, that's the one to come. Yeah. Yeah, that's the one to come. But it, I guess it would have been for you to move to Oakland and then become a Cubs fan. There would have. You, there also has to be. <laughs> I think you'd probably. It seems like another ingredient, right? Is like a, some measure of authenticity or or regional regional affiliation. Right, yeah. There is an attractiveness to to Oakland sports. Um and I don't know, I, I'm sure that, that I don't know if you've been to Oakland or, you know, know about Oakland, but yeah, Oakland's a great place and there's a great sense of community that also surrounds the sports teams. Um so they made a very kind of attractive place to to jump off onto. Um so yeah, uh, it, it has been a kind of chasing of of that emotional return, um, and I think it, it's also that, and I'm sure Giants fans can speak to this, and and teams that have been used to suffering and then have won so much in the past few years is that, you know, there's a watering down of the fan base that happens, and and I know this is you know, this is the kind of crotchety old man in me saying that you know the fan base isn't what it used to be, but I don't know there there is some sort of bandwagon nature to a team winning that that makes them less desirable to root for even if you've rooted for them for you know your entire life. Well, right, right. So part of it is is being able to to feel a sense of ownership, right? right. Over over the team. I mean, this is not this is a, a trend. I'm sure that it, it appears in a number of different situations, uh but certainly I'm going to guess if you're a person who's been to who's been to Hampshire College and also lives in Oakland. Uh, you've had a run-in or two with indie rock music. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Uh-huh. Indeed, yeah. But this, I mean, that's something that happens in that, right? It, you, you sort of, um, when you identify, you you come across a, a band, a, a rock and roll outfit, um, in the earlier stages of the career, you begin to develop a sense of of ownership over part of it. And then, you know, when, uh, you know, when that, when that band has some success and, you know, more people discover them, uh, which is good for the band, you know, it's usually good for the band because Absolutely. then they can, um, you know, parlay their skills into, you know, something like a, like a job. An actual living. Yeah. yeah right. <laughs> and, 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 uh, but as a, um, as a supporter of the, of the group, you feel, you essentially like, your your share of your share of ownership is uh, is smaller than it used to be. Right, exactly. Right. You know the kind of I found them first mentality. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I'm, yeah, I'm sympathetic. I'm sympathetic to that while simultaneously recognizing it's silly. I think you. Could oh, absolutely. Both, yeah, exactly. I think there's a you know a distinctly human uh, you know kind of drive to that, um, trying to find that and trying to find the the new and trying to establish ownership over it. Um, so you know, in a way, I am slightly ashamed of of me having you know uh abandoned the red Sox at you know at this time but i don't know oakland's a great team to root for they're a fun team to root for and and 
I've just kind of come to terms with the fact that in in terms of what I'm what I'm searching for out of out of my fandom, you know, I'm I'm under no illusion anymore in terms of you know, I want the I want the emotional return if that's possible with the Oakland days, which I'm you know, slowly coming to terms with it. It might not be with the A's. So, <laughs> so, th- so that's the that is the fandom. That's your sort of fan narrative. Where does your analytical narrative? How does that develop? Um, I've always been. I've probably read Fangraphs for you know ever since its inception. Um, and I think that I was able to start going to more games when I moved to Oakland, and I've always. I've always been interested in the analytics side of, or the analysis side of baseball and, and the deep stats side of baseball. So I, I think that when I started being able to go to more games and kind of think more about baseball, um, I just kind of thought, why not, you know, try my hand at it? I've always, I've always written, you know, creatively. So I kind of thought I'd take a crack at, you know, writing this, this more analytical styled, um, stuff and you know i did a little work for athletics nation and also did stuff on the community blog and that's when you know i started writing for the hardball times too and and that kind of just um naturally made its way into fan graphs but you know i i just i think that my writing is is well suited to the sort of analytics and um you know it's it's never been a a thing about um i don't know how to describe it actually like it's never been a, a a necessarily a a quest for deeper knowledge. Maybe it's, it's a, a different way to understand the game. It's a different way to love the game for me. Um, and you know, I think that, that the, the deeper knowledge and, and, and the deeper understanding is, it's a kind of byproduct of that. I don't know. What was it? What was your first exposure to it? To saber stuff? Yeah. Um, you know, I actually, I can't pinpoint a, a distinct memory where... Why know. the hell are we talking, Watson? <laughs> you know, I read Moneyball when I was in, you know, in college, I think, and, um, you know, but I've, I've always read Fangraphs. I can't even remember the, when I, when I started reading Fangraphs, but, um, you know, it's just, I've always loved baseball and, and always sought to understand it better, so, I don't know, it's, it's seemingly a, a slow burn, a slow build, as opposed to one distinct sort of memory. Okay. I'm sorry to burst your bubble on that one. Yeah, well, it's not it's not helping this, it's not helping this narrative unfold. <laughs> I don't really have a good Genesis story in terms of saber stuff. <laughs> Let me ask you a question. I'll, we'll go back to baseball momentarily. I'm mm-hmm. curious about Oakland as a place to live. I know that it, it it seems to be a more affordable. I don't know how affordable it is, but a more affordable alternative to San Francisco, which I believe is well, it's either one or two in terms of property values in the United States. Yeah, it is uh, quickly becoming. Almost on par with San Francisco nowadays in terms of oh of, Oakland is yeah Ugh. it's uh, it's bad yeah it's gotten really bad recently um, that sounds yeah. that sounds miserable you know I was I, I've been doing some reading recently on um uh, you know urban design and uh, uh and, and what you know what the, those qualities which which do and do not make a, a city or a town attractive and livable mm-hmm. and there <clears throat> there's a sort of paradox that occurs right. Um, which is those places that are des- in, in which it's most desirable to live um, sometimes make those same places undesirable to live because you have because people are like oh the, you know the weather's the weather's good and uh, it's close to the water or you know maybe there are a lot of uh, there's you know, there's a lot of walkability there's a lot of culture cu- uh, cultural opportunities all these things are true you know to varying degrees of San Francisco and, and the Bay Area generally. But so that attracts you know that attracts a lot of people, 
but then, of course, that causes, I mean, most notably, uh, prohibitive, uh, you know, real estate prices, and then, you know, other other sorts of problems too, you know, congestion, mm-hmm. um, and uh, pollution. I suppose, you know, I don't know what you know whatever else could occur to it, but you certainly uh, expense generally is something that makes can make a town unlivable. Because you have to work so much just to stay there that uh, your quality of life diminishes. Right, and that's – I think my girlfriend and I are kind of moving to that sort of realization or have, have you know, um, recently realized realized that is that, you know, it's it's kind of reaching this point where, you know, it's, it's maybe not worth it or it's not going to be worth it fairly soon. Um, you know, when I first moved here, I was just amazed coming from the East Coast um, – you know, we've also been in a drought, so it just, it hasn't rained in three years here, and that's terrible, but, you know, it's, when it doesn't rain and it's 70 degrees every day, it's, it, you know, it kind of, uh, it just lulls you into this, you know, is this place really real sort of thing? The Bay Area, I, I don't know, I think anyone who has lived in the Bay Area, um, and maybe this is more as an outsider, but when you go to other places, it's, um, you know, it's, I'm not sure they're really, is a more idyllic and livable place than the Bay Area. And I'm not saying that as someone who is planning on living here for their entire life, but it's just, when I first got here, I was just kind of amazed at the the beauty and the walkability and, you know, everything about it and the weather. And it's just this kind of um, singular, almost fake place in a, in a weird way. Um, but it obviously has reached the point now where, um, due mostly to expenses, it's like, well, we might have to move, you know, to someplace, someplace different. You got a good farmer's market near you? Oh, boy, do we ever. Yeah? About about a 1,000 feet away. Oh, that sounds good. How often are we talking? Uh, every Saturday morning. Every Saturday morning. Yeah, you must and, you get, know, we, you can, must, we can walk to all the grocery stores and restaurants and yada, yada, yada. So. You must get some great stuff there, though, because there's a lot of produce in California. Oh, yep. The, you know, organic kale on sale <laughs> every Saturday morning. <laughs> Those heirloom tomatoes, man, can't beat them. But you, you get, can you get any nuts right from Modesto? Oh, I'm sure you can. You know, I'm sure you get the best almonds. You well, know, you, the, you know, you you don't invest in nuts. <laughs> You're not a nut guy, huh? I'm not a huge nut guy. You know. Okay. <laughs> um, but yeah, so you know, we're we're looking at you know maybe some some East Coast places or something like that. But um, my girlfriend has roots in in the Bay Area, so I'm sure we'll be coming back here, even if we do end up moving. Yeah. Yeah, you got to find out. Well, we're, I know that uh, some people. I have a friend who's who's moving to Los Angeles, and he, he uh, a number of his friends who who did live in the Bay Area are have also moved to Los Angeles. Los Angeles is the cheaper alternative at this point. I could never live in in LA. Yeah. Just the traffic. Just Traffic's seems, crazy. Just seems insane. I just can't do that. And I'm like a I'm like a person that becomes you know. Like you know, the Hulk in the car, where I just go crazy in traffic. So by which is mean you undress in the car. Indeed, yeah, I grow That's, that's the only way you and, mean that. And start actually. smashing things, you know. <laughs> oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, um, all right. So, so what are you going to target? What are your what are your sort of go to criteria for find, for identifying a place? Um, so um, we are big travelers, or at least big kind of nature road tripper people. We like camping and that sort of thing. So um, places that are close to beautiful mountains are, are probably in the list of criteria. Mm-hmm. Um, How do, do you uh, – I know that uh, – you know, I was talking with Dave Cameron recently, and Dave Cameron is a – he's a 
he's an altitude, or maybe a Sullivan. They're both sort of one and the same in, in this sense that they're they're um, altitude elitists. Okay, yeah, because I know Sullivan, you know, goes hiking in Patagonia and stuff. Right, but he also, I think I mentioned something about mountains in New Hampshire. It might have been, it was either Sullivan or <laughs> Oh, and uh, he was he was scoffing at he's you. Scoffing, yeah. Oh, he was scoffing, wow. yeah, yeah. Oh, jeez. Yeah, because you know, and hey, listen, I've lived on the West Coast. All right, I know, I know the story. <laughs> all right, I know, you know the, the deal here. Yeah, yeah, they're big, they're big mountains. Congratulations! Big mountains. It's not like you invented you know, them. Big whoop. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you didn't create those mountains. Uh, and these, uh, the mountains in New Hampshire are, you know, good, we're good. they're decent. They're decent too. I'm not gonna, totally I'm not gonna, Don't yeah, feel I'm not gonna great, go to great lengths to support you know. them either though. You know, I didn't create them. <laughs> my point is, my point is, are, are, do you have, uh, are you, would you say that you're, you're particular about the altitude or do you say just mountains in general? I would say I'm not, I am not an altitude elitist. Um, you know, I grew up in the Blue Ridge, so I'm, I'm, you know, I'm used to those old, beautiful blue mountains, you know, I, I don't have a problem with them, but I, you know, in conversely, I do respect the large mountains and the, you know, um, splendor and grandeur of those, of those large mountain ranges, but by no means are they a requirement for me. What ranges do you have near you there in Oakland? Um, well, you know, this, the whole Sierra Nevada is just, runs obviously uh east of here so i mean we we have the oakland hills and such and we have a large mountain called mount diablo which is the largest one in the bay area um but and then of course the cascades up north and pacific northwest but those are the two closest that's way up there yeah Mm -hmm. what is uh what is hey what's this have you ever been to uh redwood regional park uh yeah so that happens there uh, you know that's like a mile or two away from my house so it's you know it's nice. I've been been on a few hikes there. There's some some lovely redwoods. Yeah, I mean you just find redwoods just growing in random places around here. You're like, oh, that's a redwood, you it's know. A redwood, yeah. Um, and you know most of them aren't 200 feet tall, but like you know the ones in all the old growth forests. But they can uh, be. They can be. They exactly. can be. Yeah. Um. So yeah, that's just a nice little regional park. You know, we we my girlfriend and I just um about a month ago went on a. A nine-day road trip up to the Pacific Northwest, and you know, hit Redwood National Park on the way down, and, and that sort of stuff. So I went to Olympic and North Cascades National Park, which is yeah. a kind of remote one. So that was fun. Yeah. Oh yeah, you're only you're only three hours from Yosemite. Yeah, exactly. Well, what is no, Yosemite like? What happens there? The West, the West is just crazy. The, you know, it, yeah, if you know, three hours driving, you can be in Yosemite. So you know, it's Yosemite. It's one of those. Absolutely incredible national parks, you know, that you see in Ansel Adams photographs and that. And that's yeah, stuff. and you got to drive. You, you could drive through. Uh, you can get there. You can drive through Stockton. You can drive through Modesto. Lo- lovely Stockton. Yep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You can get. You can catch uh, any number of uh, high A California League games out there. Yeah, I've been meaning to do that. Oh, great. <laughs> hey, what's the deal with? <clears throat> that, sorry, I didn't mean to. <laughs> oh yeah, big whoop. <laughs> <laughs> Temporarily, uh, temporarily taken over by the spirit of Jerry Seinfeld. <laughs> I don't understand. What I mean to say is this: I don't understand San Jose, and perhaps there's nothing to understand. But uh, this is—I think this is—I uh, think it's actually more populous than San Francisco itself. I—I I believe that as well. You know, I don't—I um, don't want to tra- talk too much trash about San Jose. I'm not asking you to talk trash. Um, I'm saying I don't understand any of it. <laughs> I don't either. Okay. Uh, I just know that they want to steal the A's. And, you know, that's been been the overarching theme yeah. to my time here has been, you know, 
keep the A's in Oakland if, if you know, because I don't want to drive an hour south to San Jose. Oh, is it inconvenient you know? for you? And that's why the A's can't go there and make a little, make a little more Exactly. Scala? You know, they allow me to be a little bit of a selfish Oakland fan here, you know? Yeah. I want to be able to jump on the off-delayed BART, you know, and, uh, and go to my Oakland A's games. Okay. <laughs> oh, yeah, there's Mount Diablo right there. That's near the Morgan Territory Regional Preserve. Ah. You ever been there? I have not. How about Black Diamond Mines? Uh, <laughs> sounds like an <laughs> awful place to go. <laughs> the uh, I have uh, – my dad will sometimes – I don't know if your parents are still living or whatever. Sometimes I, uh, if I visit my dad or I'm talking to him on the phone, he'll just read the internet to me. Just, Does your dad ever do anything oh, like that? Oh, this is an interesting thing yeah. that I'm seeing here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, does he ever do that to you? Uh, no, he he hasn't done that recently, um, which, you know, maybe I'll ask him to. Just read the bit. internet. I'm sure I have it's a, uh, soothing in a way, right? Like, you know, what is he reading you? Is he reading you? I don't know. Like, he'll you know, read Robert Service poems. Well, he's, or he's like uh, no, he's he's like you know, he's on the, the he's a, he's a practical sort of minded person. He's on the okay. He's a conservative sort of gentleman, but uh, you know, he'll read to me like from the from the Wikipedia page of Emerson Lake and Palmer, <laughs> just to tell me about them. He okay. likes music a lot, so he'll tell me all about them. Mostly Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, I guess. Yeah. When my uh, my when his uh, my half brother, his uh, his his oldest son from a second marriage, was applying to schools, my uh, my dad would sometimes just sit by the computer and read aloud. He would go to like a Wikipedia page for oh, you know a school like a college in New Jersey. And just read it aloud. <laughs> just a random, a random tiny yeah, faculty, college in New Jersey. Faculty to student ratio. Do you want to know that? <laughs> He'll tell you. Yeah. <laughs> you never get that. What's? You got any? Uh, your parents have any? Um, what is that called? Do they have any uh, quirks like that? I don't care for that word. But do they have any, any qu- attributes? Any quirks? Yeah. Um, you know, my dad. My dad loves baseball. I wouldn't call that a quirk. No. Um, you know, not off the top of my head. No, I mean, I have, I, you know, what happens a lot is, um, I'll call my sister and she has two young children. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and of course, one of the small children will end up picking up the phone, you know, so I'll end up. That's having, already fun. You're already yeah. having fun. Well, right. And, you know, and I'll, and I'll end up talking to a four year old for, you know, mm-hmm. 25 minutes mm-hmm. who answers none of my questions, by the way. No, you know, they're selfish. They are selfish. <laughs> they are selfish. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they are selfish. Uh, okay, two, just two more questions. One of them is, uh, one of them is, was what, what is your, um, what, what do you think your greatest, what do you think is your greatest weakness? Or one of your, one of your great weaknesses? One of my great weaknesses. In general, just in life? Yeah, 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 I don't need to, I can, I know, I, I know what they are in terms of baseball writing. I have uh, a list of them. <laughs> <laughs> Will you email me them? I didn't know this list existed. Oh yeah, yeah. I got a file on you, Watson. Um, you know, when especially with writing, I I tend to I I edit as I go, so I have a hard time with big projects. Mm-hmm. You know, um, especially I'm working. I'm trying to trying to write a book right now. Actually, it's my other big project, and uh, you know, just sitting down and kind of just banging something out instead of going. You know, write a paragraph, edit the paragraph, write a paragraph, edit a paragraph. Yeah. Um, it's something that. that I, I struggle with, you know, and, uh, that can lead to things taking way more time than I think they're going to instead of just, um, you're so. Editing you know, as you're writing. Right. And I don't like, uh, I don't like the word, you know, like 
perfectionist, but you know, if you want to call it that, then you can call it that. I, you know, I'm not going to. No, I, I don't want to either. I, yeah. you know, because I think it's a, uh, you know, a fault rather than a, a good thing. But right. yeah, the other one was, uh, oh yeah, this goes circles back to one of the earliest, uh, earliest dis- um, parts of this discussion uh, regarded Eugene Merman's commencement address at Hampshire, um, which again was notable because he had actually been a, st- a student there. Uh, I was wondering if you were at all familiar with the commencement address as a as a genre. If you had done, for example, I find myself on YouTube quite frequently, and I've consumed Conan O'Brien at Dartmouth, uh, Will Ferrell at Harvard, I think probably Andy Samberg at Harvard. There's a notable George Saunders commencement address. I think also David Foster Wallace. I don't know if it's available by way of YouTube, but This Is Water. Yeah, that's one of my favorites, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm wondering if you are a fan of the form at all, if there's any... Uh, Notable examples that you'd care to. Well, you know, uh, the David Foster Wallace one is obviously a a must listen or at least a must read because I know it's been you know syndicated in all different types of formats um, at this point. Um, you know, and like I've listened to the Steve Jobs one and stuff, and of course you sending me that that one from from Hampshire in 2012 got me onto my commencement speech uh, or you know speech giver who was Bobcat Goldthwait. Right. Um, yeah, exactly. Um, but you know, I'm I'm not one to search out the commencement address as as pure entertainment value. Um, but you know, the the David Foster Wallace one obvious, and I think that that I will probably go on a bit of a Hampshire, uh, you know, rampage now with commencement speeches due to to uh, your guidance. Yeah, for better actually, or for worse, saw, you know. I just saw Bobcat Goldthwait. I think he made an appearance on the Jimmy Kimmel show. He's just directed a new movie. Um, about his friend, he's directed a documentary about a, f- a comedy friend of his. Who you know what I? <laughs> you go on. What? Go on. Go ahead. Finish. It's called "Call Me Lucky." I think I forget who the comedian is, but was uh, well, it's dark. I think it's dark. It's a dark th- sub. Do you know? What, yeah, I think what? most of his stuff is really dark. Yeah, yeah. No, uh, I think that uh, what happens. What happens is. Uh, his his, uh, his friend, his comedian, uh, has a um, remembers an instance in which he was molested as a youth, mm-hmm. and then he goes. I think he maybe he sues AOL. This is maybe it starts in like the mid nineties, mid to late nineties. Sues AOL for essentially uh, unwittingly or not hosting uh, child pornography. Okay, Got yeah, it. and then it leads a whole legal battle, and so that's the the documentary. Um, documents that, mm. which is what documentary films frequently do. That process. What I what I liked about the Bobcat Goldthwait speech for for my year. I haven't is, seen is, it. I didn't see it. I didn't. Have you should it. watch it only because he mentions this the sort of formulaic you know way that commencement speeches unfold. You know, is right. that you know. Uh, here's, here's why I am, why I've, why I've become famous and successful and, you know, um, these are the life lessons I've learned. <laughs> he kind of, he does the opposite, um, you know, and, and in true Hampshire style tells everyone that, you know, they don't need to have a job, that they, they can just follow their heart and that they're special and that sort of thing. Um, but the, my favorite part is that it's 15 minutes long and, uh, he looks like he's going to vomit out of nervousness for the entirety of it. Uh, you know, so it's this this very nervous, very bobcat golf weight um, sort of sort of commencement speech. You think that he would be? Uh, of course, he's a, an experienced performer. He would think that it wouldn't necessarily mean that. Right. I mean, um, you know, 
I wonder if he has done stage acting at all or whether it's just in front of the camera and, you know, standing in front of 300 people was kind of... No, of uh, course. He was, a, he, was a, he was a famous, famous stand-up comedian. Oh, yeah, I guess you're right. His whole bit was, was nervousness. So maybe he was just letting, you know, maybe he was just, you know, That's putting true. us on. That's true. Yeah, he's riddled with anxiety. Exactly. Okay. Hey, uh, do you have any uh, suspicions about whether you may or may not have fulfilled your obligation to Fangraphs Audio? Uh, I, you know, I believe I have, if this is what Fangrass Audio normally is, uh, yeah. you know, which is, you know, asking highly personal questions, I yeah. want to say, you know, uh, yeah. and, you know, I, I feel like I have, I feel like I've done my best here. All right. Yeah. Maybe eventually we'll have you on to analyze all baseball, but that's not what's happening. Right? <laughs> exactly. I hope that, uh, you know, the, the, the millions of listeners out there have, have gotten to know, uh, Owen Watson a little bit better as yeah, a person. Yeah, I feel like I have. Oh, well, all right. Yeah. Well, thank you, Owen Watson. All right, thank you, Carson Stooley. I'm going to say that has been Owen Watson, a contributor to uh, Fangraphs.com, author of an unpublished short novel. <laughs> I'm Carson Stooley, and this is uh, this is Fangraphs oh. Audio.